Emma and Nelson, part three. England and the fight of Nelson's life. Nelson arrived at Nerot's hotel to be reunited with his wife at three o'clock on a gloomy Sunday afternoon on the 9th of November in the year 1800, following one of the worst storms to hit mainland England in recorded history. He had not seen his wife for two years, and the woman who accompanied him, Emma Hamilton, was now his adored mistress and one of the most famous women in the world. In England, the story of her rise from humble origins was told over and over again in the press, and often loaded with innuendo regarding her relationship with Nelson. Nelson's wife, Fanny, had heard and read the rumours that had been pouring back from Naples, Palermo, and all points on the European tour that had brought them back to England. She knew that she had a younger rival to deal with, but when Emma swept into the room at Nerot's hotel, Fanny almost certainly would have observed that her rival had succeeded where she had failed. While her marriage to Nelson was childless, Emma was clearly pregnant, though nobody mentioned it. This meeting, which should have been unbearably awkward, was smoothed along by Emma's urbane, witty and socially adept husband, Sir William Hamilton, who, ever the diplomat, made sure that everything went off without incident. But Nelson refused to withdraw with Fanny in privacy. He could not bear to leave Emma's side, and later he left without Fanny to go to the Admiralty. On his way he was mobbed on the Strand. Afterwards, on his way to a dinner at the mansion house, his coach was carried along by a cheering mob. At the dinner itself, Nelson was placed under a triumphal arch and presented with a 200-guinea sword. A less pleasant note was struck at a levee at St James's Palace, the official seat of the royal court. Here, King George III asked Nelson if he had recovered his health, but as Nelson was about to launch into his answer, the king very pointedly turned away from him. It has never been established whether this was an early sign of the madness that was soon to engulf him, his way of showing his disapproval that Nelson had gone first to the mansion house, or possibly the king's verdict on Nelson's very public affair with Emma. Despite the king's behaviour, Nelson commanded respect and gratitude in the higher circles. When his agent, Alexander Davidson, gave a banquet in his honour, it was attended by the Prince of Wales, five cabinet ministers, including the Prime Minister William Pitt, the First Lord of the Admiralty, and two admirals. For this period in London, Nelson and Fanny took a house on Dover Street, and Emma and William moved into a mansion in Grosvenor Square, lent to them by the eccentric millionaire William Beckford. In the days that followed, Nelson was described as being in constant motion, and members of his own family found it hard to see him for more than a few minutes at a time. But he visited Emma daily and praised her constantly to his wife. Emma was big news, and stories about her filled the many daily papers. She was often caricatured as Cleopatra, who had enraptured Mark Antony, while Fanny was compared to Octavia, Antony's childless and dull wife. Emma even took to wearing Turkish dress, which was enough to encourage these associations. She also wore the empire line in her dresses, with the waist pulled very high, a style that helped to disguise or perhaps make the best of her state of pregnancy. The result was that all over England, women asked their dressmakers to copy this style, effectively making a maternity dress all the fashion. 
Even the Maltese cross that she had been awarded became a fashion item, with copies available at a range of prices and qualities. Caroline, the Princess of Wales, was seen wearing one. To say that all of this must have been very trying to Lady Nelson is surely an understatement. The crudeness of the caricatures appearing in the print shops is remarkable. In a famous image by Cruikshank, Nelson and Sir William are portrayed smoking pipes. In the picture, Emma remarks to Nelson that her husband's pipe is always out while yours burns with full vigour. In the image, Sir William's pipe is unlit while Nelson's produces billowing smoke. Nelson replies to Emma, I'll give you such a smoke, I'll pour a whole broadside into you. Such prints were purchased by wealthier clients for enjoyment at home, but they were on public display in the windows of print shops, where rowdy crowds would gather to gawp and laugh at them. Being so publicly cuckolded might well have driven another man to rage and retribution, but Sir William was somehow able to shrug it all off. His relationship with Nelson was complex. He admired him, but his close friendship with him also brought social cachet. He had also clocked up very substantial debts by borrowing from Nelson to cover his expenses during the closing days in Naples, Palermo and the voyage back. Sir William genuinely enjoyed Emma's company, perhaps even loved her, and was possibly thankful to have another man to absorb her considerable energies and the expenses associated with a woman who spent freely when she could. Some of his letters suggest William's admiration and fondness for Nelson went so deep that it cancelled out any sense of being humiliated. Sir William was also a man of a philosophical bent. He knew that a man who marries a very young woman will one day be usurped. He believed that the only thing we really possess in life is the present moment, and he often commented that he did not give a fig for the world. In one letter he wrote, A man of my age ought not to be attached to any worldly thing. Fanny, however, was not prepared to simply allow the affair to go unchallenged, but her efforts to win Nelson back only irritated him. On one occasion, Nelson and Fanny went out without the Hamiltons to the home of Lady Spencer, wife of the First Lord of the Admiralty. When Fanny shelled a glassful of walnuts and passed them to her husband, he cast it aside so violently that it broke the glass, and Fanny burst into tears. On most evenings, the Nelsons and the Hamiltons went out together, Fanny had to endure the misery of constantly seeing evidence of Nelson's affection for Emma. At a production of a play, Emma's old friend Jane Powell, once a fellow housemaid at Dr Budd's and now one of the greatest actresses of the age, looked straight at Fanny when she said the line, Meet and survive an injured woman's fury. This line caused an uproar in the theatre. Fanny fainted and the press went into overdrive. To add to her humiliation, Fanny was aided by her rival Emma when she was carried to her carriage. The situation became intolerably strained. Nelson took to walking the streets of London late into the night, always ending up at Grosvenor Square at the home of Emma and Sir William. At this point, the media were largely on Emma's side and they were putting pressure on Queen Charlotte to receive Emma at court, with newspaper articles detailing the efforts that she had made to ensure the revictualling and watering of the fleet before the Battle of the Nile. When it became clear that no such invitation was to be forthcoming, Nelson and the Hamiltons decided to spend Christmas with William Beckford at Fonthill Abbey, his enormous Gothic folly. Fanny was left behind with Nelson's pompous brother William and his wife for company. At a sumptuous dinner at Beckford's wildly eccentric Fonthill Abbey, 
Emma, being now quite advanced in her pregnancy, performed a more toned-down version of her attitudes. After Christmas, Sir William and Emma moved to 23 Piccadilly, facing Green Park. Here, Emma prepared to give birth. She let it be known that she had a bad cold, and her doctor slipped in and out in secret to avoid press speculation. Nelson, who was promoted Vice-Admiral on the 1st of January, 1801, had one final bitter row with Fanny. An attorney called William Hazelwood, who was engaged in trying to secure Nelson some prize money, witnessed the whole embarrassing scene, which is dramatised, based on this and other evidence, in Trafalgar, the television series which is fully scripted and which you can find out more about at the website trafalgar.tv. Hazelwood described how Nelson was again extolling Lady Hamilton's virtues when Fanny rose to her feet and declared, I am sick of hearing of dear Lady Hamilton and am resolved that you shall give up either her or me. To which Nelson replied, Take care, Fanny, what you say. I love you sincerely, but I cannot forget my obligation to Lady Hamilton or speak of her otherwise than with affection and admiration. Lady Nelson left the room muttering and shortly afterwards left the house. They parted company permanently on January the 13th. Nelson then left for Plymouth and embarked on the St. Joseph. He never saw his wife again. Nelson arranged for Fanny to be paid a regular sum that she herself described as a handsome quarterly allowance that far exceeded my expectations. She would be a wealthy woman from now on, but she never abandoned the hope that her husband would come to his senses, believing that he had been bewitched by Emma. She continued to write letters to Nelson, who became so fed up he wrote from sea to his friend Alexander Davison, Before I arrive in England and signify to Lady N that I expect, and for which I have made such a very liberal allowance to her, to be left to myself, and without any inquiries from her. When Fanny continued to write to him, Nelson sent the letters back to Davidson, who wrote on one of them, opened by mistake by Lord Nelson, but not read. He then forwarded it to Fanny. This has been cited as an example of Nelson's cruelty, but Fanny was in denial about the split, and some of her behaviour would probably be nowadays regarded as bordering on harassment. Their relationship was over, and Nelson was in love with someone else. Nelson was now made second in command of an expedition to be sent to the Baltic, under the elderly Sir Hyde Parker, whose style could not have been more different from Nelson's. Far from leaping into action, Sir Hyde found excuses for endless delays. On the 28th of January, 1801, while at sea, Nelson learned that the child he had conceived with Emma and the Foudroyant had been born. He was overwhelmed with emotion, one moment crying and then the next moment laughing. He described the birth as a gleam of future comfort and was nearly driven mad by the need to hide his emotions. During this period, from the 25th of January to the 12th of March, 1801, 38 of Nelson's letters to Emma survive. He was writing more than one a day. Nelson and Emma had to invent a fictitious couple for use when writing to each other in case their letters fell into the wrong hands. In their elaborate conceit, Emma was supposedly looking after a Mrs. Thompson and her child, while Nelson pretended that the fictitious father was a young man in his ship. In the story, an uncle stood in the way of their marriage, creating the need for secrecy and subterfuge. Only when they were sure that their letters were being hand-delivered by a trusted person could they be completely frank. 
Now, my own dear wife, for such you are in my eyes and in the face of heaven, I can give full scope to my feelings, wrote Nelson in one letter. You know, my dearest Emma, that there is nothing in this world that I would not do for us to live together and to have our dear child with us. Nelson predicted that the little girl would be the most beautiful woman of her age, and from now on every letter would refer to his daughter, urging Emma to send his love and a blessing to our little girl. In Nelson's mind, the birth of this child proved that Emma was his heaven-given wife. Emma had decided on the name Horatia for the child. Nelson's choice would have been Emma, a stark demonstration of the couple's obsession with each other. Although Nelson talked of all sorts of plans, of even moving to his Bronte estate on the Isle of Sicily with Emma and Horatia, he never once mentioned divorce from Fanny, a process which in those days was very costly and required an act of Parliament. After a few days, the child was taken to a Mrs Gibson at 9 Little Titchfield Street, Marylebone, and here the baby was cared for and fed by a wet nurse. Later, the child would be brought occasionally to visit her mother. Being a highly recognisable celebrity, however, this had to be done carefully, and in one surviving letter, Emma instructs Mrs Gibson to keep Horatia well covered getting in and out of the coach. There now followed an absurd saga of jealousy and pain, which reveals the intense and volatile passion that drove Nelson and Emma's relationship. It started when the Prince of Wales was heard saying to Mr Nesbitt, Nelson's stepson, that Emma took his fancy. Nelson, away at sea, heard the rumours and suffered agonies over it. He was convinced that Sir William would be forced to invite the Prince to dine at their house. Soon, Nelson's letters were filled with his new obsession. Do not let the liar come. May God blast him. Be firm. Do not, I beseech you, risk being at home. Does Sir William want you to be a whore to the rascal? Wrote a feverish Nelson from his ship. In another passage, he wrote, Do not have him en famille. The more the better. Do not sit long at table. Good God, he will be sitting next to you and telling you soft things. If he does, tell it out at table and turn him out of the house. Don't let him touch nor yet sit next to you. If he comes, get up. God strike him blind if he looks at you. This is high treason and you may get me hanged by revealing it. Sir William himself was not averse to the idea of entertaining the Prince of Wales at home. He was overwhelmed with debts and with rumours that King George was losing his mind it was expected that there would soon be a regency. Should this happen, the Prince of Wales would become the principal power in the land. William would be able to press his claim that the government should reimburse him for all his expenses. Nelson feared the glittering power of the Prince of Wales would be enough to seduce his mistress, ignoring the fact that she was still recovering from a birth that left her with permanent health issues. In fact, it is now believed that Emma had given birth to twin girls, one of whom did not survive. The idea that she would be ready to leap into an affair with the Prince of Wales at such a time is somewhat absurd. On her part, Emma was conscious of the temptations that we placed in Nelson's way as an officer of the highest rank on trips to shore. She managed to obtain from him promises not to leave his ship, though he assured her, I might be trusted with fifty virgins naked in a dark room. In the end, the Prince never did come to dinner, and the feverish jealousy abated. Before he departed for the north, 
Nelson finally met his daughter, Horatia, and was instantly besotted. A finer child never was produced by any two persons, he wrote. He went on, It was in truth a love-begotten child. Back at sea, Nelson's letters were once again filled with passion for Emma. My longing for you, both person and conversation, you may readily imagine. What must be my sensations at the idea of sleeping with you? It sets me on fire. Even the thought, much more would the reality. I am sure my love and desires are all to you, and if any woman, naked, was to come to me, even as I am this moment thinking of you, I hope it might rot off if I were to touch her even with my hand. In London, the Hamiltons, whose expenses were enormous, became overwhelmed with debt, and when Emma's collection of jewellery, much of it gifted by Queen Maria Carolina, turned out to be worth a fraction of what they had hoped, Sir William was forced to have a sale of his effects at Christie's, including many paintings of Emma. Nelson was horrified at the thought of the public gawping at the many portraits of Emma that went on sale, and he got the ever-helpful Alexander Davidson to go along and save a particularly sensual portrait of her lying on a leopard rug. The mission to the Baltic was intended to break up the Second League of Armed Neutrality, or League of the North. This was an alliance of the North European naval powers, Denmark, Norway, Prussia, Sweden and Russia. Their treaty had been put in place to combat the Royal Navy's unlimited searching of neutral shipping for French contraband. The British government saw the treaty as the formation of a kind of alliance with Napoleon. It certainly affected the importing of Baltic timber that had become essential for the Navy's masts. The commander of the expedition, Sir Hyde Parker, was a gentleman of 61 who had just married a plump 18-year-old girl known as Batter Pudding to the sailors. As they dallied far too long at Yarmouth, where Sir Hyde was able to sleep ashore with his young wife, Nelson wrote of him, Our friend here is a little nervous about dark nights and fields of ice. Nelson, the victor of the Battle of the Nile, the greatest naval victory in British history, was incredibly frustrated to be placed under Sir Hyde, and he wrote, It was never my desire to serve under this man. To tell me to serve on in this way is to laugh at me and to think me a greater fool than I am. It seems likely that Nelson's very public affair with Emma and the rumours of his conduct in Naples had caused the powers that be to question his judgment. There was even the suspicion that he was slightly touched by madness since the great blow to the head during the Nile battle. Placing him second in command was felt to be a way to employ his naval genius while keeping him in check in the event this proved impossible to do. The formidable naval force, with Nelson in the St George, finally sailed north on the 12th of March, 1801. Parker initially froze Nelson out of the planning, but when the Danes refused to negotiate, in effect declaring war, Nelson wrote to Emma, Now we are sure of fighting, I am sent for. When it was a joke, I was kept in the background. Sir Hyde may have been in charge, but once the fleet reached Copenhagen, he found himself eclipsed by Nelson, who had been straining at the leash throughout, furious at unnecessary delays, which he knew gave time for the enemy to prepare their defences. Rattled by reports of the Danes' preparations at Copenhagen and the difficulties of approaching the city, Sir Hyde lost his nerve 
and declared that he wanted to simply wait for the enemy to come to him. He had already delayed things badly. And every day he wasted led to more ice melt, freeing the Russian fleet for an attack. He had already allowed the Danes to build up their defences around Copenhagen. In a five-hour interview with Sir Hyde in his great cabin, Nelson talked him round. On your decision depends whether our country shall be degraded in the eyes of Europe or whether she shall rear her head higher than ever, he wrote to Parker afterwards. He again stated one of his favourite maxims. The boldest measures are the safest. Nelson presented Parker with a range of options and he chose the most roundabout route to attack Copenhagen. However, his captain of the fleet, the captain of his flagship and another captain talked to Hyde out of this plan the next day. When Nelson was told that Parker was doubting his decision, Nelson roared, I don't care a damn by which passage we go so that we fight them. In a second interview, he got Parker to assent to attack by passing the Kronborg Castle. Nelson also ensured that a full account of what had occurred made its way back to the Prime Minister and the First Lord of the Admiralty. The Danes protected their capital with a line of hulks, mastless ships that acted as floating batteries that could be manoeuvred easily with ropes to aim their great guns at the enemy. The channel had all its markers removed and it was an unbelievably treacherous assault to attempt. The fleet passed the Kronborg Castle unscathed and Nelson got out in boats personally, overseeing the reboying and surveying of the complex system of shallows and deeps around Copenhagen. He trusted the wind to take his fleet in, then to change direction and allow him to withdraw once victory was achieved. The battle itself was the hardest fought of his career, with the line of British ships toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Danish hulks with their excellent crews. A thousand guns belched iron flames and smoke, each broadside hurtling three tons of metal at the other. In overall firepower, the two sides were roughly matched. The Danes could supply and reinforce gun crews from ashore. The British had superior muzzle velocity and better powder. At one point, Nelson insisted that a letter sent ashore from his cabin should have a proper wax seal, as the alternative would suggest, as he put it, that we were bothered by their gunfire. Nelson, pacing the left side of his quarter-deck, and occasionally being rained on by splinters, commented at one point, It is warm work, and this day may be the last to any of us at a moment, but mark you, I would not be elsewhere for thousands. During the battle, Sir Hyde Parker, who was four miles away with a small reserve squadron, flew the order for the British fleet to break off action. Famously, Nelson declared to his flag lieutenant, You know, Foley, I have only one eye. I have a right to be blind sometimes. I really do not see the signal. If you have ever used the phrase to turn a blind eye to something, this is the origin of that phrase. During a ceasefire, Nelson very cleverly managed to get the word victory into the paperwork. He received a letter asking for clarification of his intentions and wrote, Lord Nelson, with humble duty to His Royal Highness the Prince of Denmark, will consider this the greatest victory he has ever gained, if he may be the cause of a happy reconciliation and union between his own most gracious sovereign and His Majesty the King of Denmark. Of the 18 Danish vessels, 16 were sunk or destined to be burned or taken as prizes. Only one frigate escaped. The Danes lost 40% of their men. 
As at the Nile, Nelson lost not a single ship. This time, though, British casualties were high, at 943 killed or wounded, about 14% of his force. The Battle of Copenhagen was controversial then and now. The reasons for the conflict are not generally understood, or they're believed to be specious. Certainly, the Russian Tsar Paul's assassination on the 24th of March, 1801, nine days before the battle, changed the situation completely. It led to the accession of Alexander I and a new anti-Napoleonic policy in Russia. Of course, the news of all this did not reach the combatants in time. The result was that the alliance against Britain collapsed and Russia turned against France. In England, the victory was met with a mixed reaction. Lord Spencer at the Admiralty talked of the glorious victory and wrote that everyone speaks in the highest terms of his lordship's conduct on this occasion. Sir William, Emma and Nelson's family were all ecstatic. But in Parliament, Mr Gray said, this was perhaps the only war in which this country had been engaged where the first information received of it by the House was a motion for a vote of thanks in consequence of a brilliant and decisive victory without any previous communication whatsoever upon the subject. Altogether, celebrations were somewhat muted. Victory guns were fired, but public buildings were not illuminated. Nelson was raised to a Viscount, but had he been Commander-in-Chief, he would have been made an Earl, as his brother was on his death at Trafalgar four years later. Sir Hyde Parker was recalled to England in disgrace. On his return to England, Nelson headed in a decorated carriage for number 23 Piccadilly. Soon after, Nelson, Emma and Sir William set off for a fishing holiday, staying at the Bush Inn in Staines for two weeks. But the holiday came to an abrupt end when news came through that Napoleon had amassed an invasion force at Boulogne. Nelson was appointed commander-in-chief of a special squadron to defend the Channel Coast. In the penultimate episode of this special Emma and Nelson podcast series within the wider Trafalgar Squared series, we will discover how Emma and Nelson had a chance at a few years of happiness, how they set up home together, and how world events conspired to keep them apart. If you are interested in the TV series Trafalgar, which is in development, find out more at trafalgar.tv. And remember, you can support this podcast at patreon.com forward slash Adam Preston. Thanks for listening.